Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. How often do you take time to intentionally reflect on your relationships? You know, most of us could be a bit more habitual about this, and that is why I'm so thrilled to announce that my newest book, Love Every Day, is out in the world at last. It is packed with 365 reflections that will help you build this rewarding daily habit and cultivate relational self-awareness for healing and growth all year long. The readings will guide you to more deeply understand the impact of your past and your partner's past on your relationship. You'll also explore how to get your needs met, enhance communication, improve intimacy, and address relationship problems. So whether you're single, in a relationship, or between relationships, Love Every Day is really going to resonate with you. It's a beautiful guide that is perfect for your own nightstand and as a gift for someone special. There's even a fancy little ribbon for marking your place. Love Every Day invites you to develop awareness, curiosity, and empowerment so you can be seen and loved as your most authentic self and heal from times when you weren't. With this daily practice, you and your relationships will flourish throughout the year. You will find Love Every Day wherever you get your books, or you can find the link in the show notes to order it from loveeverydaybook.com. Happy reading. Hi there. I am so glad that you tuned in today because we are hitting a really exciting milestone here on Reimagining Love. Today's episode, this conversation (laughs) right here, right now, is episode 100 of the show. Oh, I'm just letting that sink in because it's pretty freaking cool. We've hit over a million downloads already. And now today, 100 episodes. Wow. And this milestone has got me for sure thinking about all the incredible guests who joined me on the show over the last two years and all the different topics I've been able to cover, many of which have been inspired by the listener questions that you have sent to me. So as a way to say thank you for listening and learning alongside me, I wanted to do a special solo episode today answering some of your listener questions. There have been some really good ones that have been coming in lately. And for today's show, I've chosen three. We're going to talk through a question that's about a young relationship that's getting quite serious. I've got a question here about a partner who's craving more attention and affection And then another question about what happens when a relationship bridges an ambition difference. So remember that without the full context and within this rather brief form, you know, we're only hearing one side of the story and we're hearing a brief condensed version of each of these stories. So I'm not going to be providing what a therapist would be providing in a face-to-face setting, of course. And for each of these situations we're going to talk about, I think therapy might be a really incredible next step. 
But for now, I hope that my responses to these questions are going to provide validation and spark reflection to the people who sent in the questions and then also to you, the listener, and gives you some food for thought on whatever version of relationship challenge you might be experiencing in your life. Okay, let's dive right in. So the first question comes from somebody who uses she, her pronouns, and she writes, I'm a female in my 20s. I've been in a happy, healthy, confident relationship for three years, and we discuss that we do not see a clear end in sight. Importantly, we both feel we are learning and growing by being together. However, I've been reflecting on what it means to be young and in a committed relationship. I've noticed friends ending relationships due to questions like, why would I stay in this relationship if we won't be together in a few years? My partner and I talk about major life events that will undoubtedly influence our lives and our relationship. For example, we both plan to go to grad school and we're not sure we want to stay in the same city for more than a year out. I don't know exactly how I will feel in a few years, but I don't think it's completely out of the question that our relationship would change or end. How do I cope with an uncertain future when I'm currently in a happy, healthy relationship? How do I reconcile being in a serious relationship at a young age when I wish to stay open to opportunities for adventure and change? I love this question because I feel like this is just the heart of what it means to be an emerging adult who is exploring intimate partnership. I feel like this is a question I have sat with so many of my college students, so many of my grad students over the last, you know, 20 something years. So I'm really grateful that you sent this question in. I think it really gets to the heart of the matter about how you hold this tension of becoming the person that you're becoming and also being somebody who is at a age and stage where loving and being loved makes sense. You know, the desire to continue to unfold and grow and change is as strong as the desire to be connected and to be kind of putting down roots. So I want to just validate that this tension is real and it makes sense and you are far, far, far from alone. So what I hear really clearly is you're loving this relationship. This relationship is offering you a ton. You're growing. Your partner is growing. And there's a question that you don't have the answer to. And that question is, what is the degree to which the two of you can keep growing together? Because so far in these three years you've experienced together, so far, you have been growing together. It sounds like by and large, the relationship has felt aligned for both of you and that you have felt that kind of sweet spot of both connection and freedom. And yet, (laughs) even as you're enjoying this relationship, you have this kind of question looming over your head. I have seen so many situations where somebody is contemplating ending something that feels good for fear of future pain, for fear of where is this going to go. And I think that my, I have a bias here. And my bias is that to end something that is largely a source of support and connection in order to preempt the potential for future hurt It feels unfortunate to me. It feels unfortunate to me for a few reasons. Number one, you're conveying to yourselves that an ending equals a tragedy. It may very well be the case that the two of you grow in different directions, but I don't think that endings have to be tragedies. If the two of you are not able to keep growing together, I wonder about the possibility of ending with grace, of ending with gentleness. You know, we have a lot of harsh language and harsh beliefs around endings being failures. And think about the language we use, you know, on social media. We talk about blocking and unfriending and we talk about canceling and, you know, cancel culture and all of this. I think we have this idea that when things end, it has to be emotional and that there's a kind of harshness around it that I don't think has to be the case. And in fact, I wonder if the two of you, if that were to happen, would be able to potentially leverage the health of your relationship into a healthy, albeit sad, ending. Could the fact that the two of you have enjoyed so much together over these three years, could that become something that you use if the relationship needs to end? Could you let each other go with grace and love and appreciation for what this chapter offered you? Okay, second of all, I think it's unfortunate to end something preemptively because 
in addition to conveying this idea that an ending has to be a tragedy, I think you're also conveying to yourselves that you don't think you could handle the ending, right? It's sort of saying, we have to end it now in case it goes south later is saying, we won't be able to handle that. And I think that that might be selling yourself short. It might be selling your partner short to think that we have to kind of minimize the risk of pain because we couldn't handle pain. I think there's a way in which that is kind of buying into a fear-loaded belief about yourself. And I'm saying that without knowing, you know, obviously there might be a lot of context here that has to do with your mental health histories or actual things that, you know, one or both of you have said about if this ends, I don't know how I would be able to handle myself, but I wonder if maybe you're selling yourself short. Okay. Then the third reason I don't love this idea of preemptive pain is I think that you, if you were to cut it off because you might grow apart, you're building a plan based on some faulty math. I don't know that it's the case that ending a three-year-long relationship actually hurts any less than ending a six-year-long relationship. Our emotions tend not to really care about numbers, about months on a calendar. I don't know that it's going to hurt any less to do it now than down the road, you know, if and when the two of you actually do grow apart and there's something that's actually not viable down the road. So for those reasons, although I understand it and I've heard it and I get it, that tends to be the way I respond when people are thinking about ending a relationship that basically feels good because it might go south. I just don't think it solves the problem that people are perhaps attempting to solve for. I also, when I was sitting with your question, was thinking about I was wanting you to dig in a little bit to the idea of whose voice is this? Whose voice is it that taught you or told you or showed you that loving somebody comes at the cost of freedom? I guess I wonder, might you be able to continue to experience the adventure that you crave, the change that you crave, and maintain this partnership? The way that you have it framed is a bit of an either or. And I guess I wonder what the origin story might be here. What is it about your family of origin? Perhaps did you see modeled or were you taught explicitly about love equaling sacrifice, that you have to give up something in order to love somebody else? I guess I wonder about you inviting your own imagining of love, of love being support of mutual adventure, shared adventure, or making space for separate adventures, like stepping away from each other and coming back together. Like, might you get to create your own imagining of how you create freedom within a relationship? And that might be really different than the family you grew up in. And you've heard me perhaps talk on the show about invisible loyalties. And, you know, sometimes we have these kind of stories that are passed from generation to generation in our family. And if that idea is that love equals sacrifice, that love equals kind of creating more smallness in your life in order to have partnership, then you might feel this kind of invisible loyalty that you also need to sacrifice freedom to love and be loved. And I guess I wonder if you might liberate yourself from that and imagine the possibility that you could continue to build this relationship while continuing to create a lot of adventure for yourself. For sure, love equals adaptation, right? You have to adapt. There is this we the two of you have built and are building that may not always need exactly quite the same thing that either of you needs, but adaptation is not necessarily the same thing as self-sacrifice. And You've heard me talk on the show before about the research out of Harvard, the longevity research about what it means to have a good life. And in fact, you hopefully listened to the episode that I did with Dr. Mark Schultz, who's one of the co-authors of the book, The Good Life, which is a book about that Harvard research. And what they found is when they tracked people over many, many, many years and decades, and actually now between generations, you know, the main predictor of a good life, of a happy life, of a life that feels like it's well-lived is the quality of the relationships that we have, including, but not limited to, our intimate relationships. So in that way, centering intimate partnership, continuing to value this relationship that feels good to you is a worthy and wise and research-based use of your time and energy. 
I also want to just put out there that I suspect, you know, as somebody who is in your 20s, there is this developmental edge that you are working with or feeling your way into, which is you have to start to see yourself or you get to start to see yourself as somebody who's old enough to make a decision like this, that you are at an age and a stage where you actually could choose partnership. You could say to this partner, you're the one that I want to continue to build my life with for the rest of my life. You're the one I want to consider marriage with or marry. And that's just a strain. I think that that is a kind of existential reality that takes a while to settle into. And so part of that, like, bigger question of, is this the relationship may have less to do with the relationship itself and more to do with just the weirdness of how am I at this point in my life where really I might be dating somebody who's going to be my husband. And so I just want to kind of like put that developmental edge or piece out there for you. And the last thing I was thinking about is you're describing this as a healthy relationship, but you may be bringing in some fears or anxieties from your own family of origin experience. So what was it that you experienced or observed as you were growing up that perhaps makes it a little bit hard for you to trust yourself, to trust your own decision-making or to trust the path that you're on in your life? Perhaps you grew up in a family that was very top-down, hierarchical, perhaps a little bit more on the authoritarian end of the spectrum. And so you grew up with a lot of messages that you don't actually know what's best for you. And so it may be that part of what makes it hard to just kind of settle in to feeling comfortable with this relationship is that you just don't feel comfortable trusting your own choices. It may be that part of what comes up for you as you imagine really looking towards the future with this person is that means you've got to trust them. So there might be some like layers of trust that you're moving towards that feel frightening or that put you face-to-face with earlier experiences where you were hurt in a relationship where there ought to have been an ability to trust. So perhaps an old trauma is getting activated now for you as you feel yourself becoming even more connected to your partner. Okay, so I hope that there's something valuable in there for you around that. And I hope that you will continue to just sit with ever more ease with these big questions. I think there's this challenge of appreciating the now while keeping one eye toward the future. The biggest risk here to me feels like losing out on really enjoying what sounds like a pretty wonderful now because you're looking ahead and afraid of a shoe dropping or something that you know isn't going to be sustainable. So I guess I wouldn't want you to sacrifice an enjoyable now because of something that is more so shrouded in fear or anxiety. Okay, wishing you the best. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Krafchick and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, question number two is from a Reimagining Love listener who uses he, him pronouns. And he writes, my question is not unique and I have heard the response on your podcast still. I'm trying to figure out how to detect my own origin story. I can see that I get really upset when my partner ignores me for a long time, implying that I have a prioritization wound. How to heal remains challenging. Not engaging in sex or hugs really bothers me, even though we've been married for 20 years. I don't have the courage to bring this topic up with my spouse. 
I want to remain satisfied, but don't want to rock the boat. Okay, so this is a listener who is doing the work. He is intent on looking at his sensitivities and connecting his sensitivities to his past. And you know that I respect this kind of relational self-awareness work, this accountability, this diligence, right? He's not placing the problem at his partner's feet. He's not saying, my partner is cold. My partner is shut down. My partner doesn't care about me, right? He's talking about his own sensitivities. He's studying his reactivity. He's also using the language of my former student turned friend and colleague, Vienna Farron when he talks about his origin wounds in her wonderful book, The Origins of You. She writes about five different origin wounds, the worthiness wound, the belonging wound, the prioritization wound, which is the one that he has, the trust wound, and the safety wound. And we did an episode with Vienna about her new book. So you can tune in, you can find the link to that episode in the show notes. So he's well-schooled and understands that the experiences he had in his family of origin, the experiences he had in his past are going to travel in to his current relationship and affect how he experiences the dynamic. Okay, so he yearns for more attention and more affection and feels therefore in touch with that prioritization wound, meaning that he feels like his partner does not prioritize time and connection with him. So. I want to validate that being ignored for a long time, as he describes here, that is painful. On its face, that is painful. I think that whether you have a prioritization wound or not, it is incredibly uncomfortable. It is antithetical to the human condition to be ignored. Silence takes up space. Silence is a powerful communication, right? I think we talk a lot about conflict being painful, yelling being painful, doors being slammed being painful, of course, of course, of course. But I I think it's really worth noting that if this is what's happening, if we were a fly on the wall and we were observing these two, and what we saw is that his partner is walking around ignoring him for long periods of time, I think it would, you know, we'd be hard pressed for any of us to say that that's anything but painful. So I want to start by validating that. And I can imagine that you, reimagining love listener who sent in this question, that you fill in that space with a thousand stories when your partner is ignoring you. You fill in that space with a thousand stories. Stories about yourself, stories about your partner, stories about the state of your relationship. So I, of course, want to kind of wrap this question in the language of like sequences or dances or choreography, because this is how I think, of course, right? So I'm imagining if we're watching you and your partner in your home, when you're in one of these phases of your partner ignoring you, I wonder what it would look like from the outside. I'm wondering when you feel ignored by your partner, what do you begin to do? And then I wonder when you begin to do whatever you do in response to your partner ignoring you, what is the meaning that your partner makes about your behavior, right? So what are the ways that the two of you are subtly and sneakily and powerfully playing off of each other, right? Your story is my partner is ignoring me. I wonder what your partner's story is. I'm not saying it's okay that you are being ignored. I'm not questioning whether or not you're being ignored, but I am wondering what we might make of your partner's silence. I'm wondering about the stories that are swirling inside of your partner's mind. And I'm wondering, of course, about what are the ways in which you inadvertently activate your partner's origin wounds as well, right? You're talking about how when your partner ignores you, when there's an absence of hugs and touch and sex, your prioritization wound is activated, of course. And I wonder what the flip of that is, right? What are the things that you do, maybe not even knowing that you do it, because what I hear in your question is that there's not a lot of conversation about what's going on. There's just gleaning. There's just surmising. So I don't know what are your partner's origin wounds that you might be accidentally 
activating inside of them that maybe then fuel your partner shutting down, pulling back, pulling away. So I think you're curious about that as well too, aren't you? You're wondering what's going on for your partner and you're afraid of raising your concern for fear of rocking the boat. You're craving more attention and more affection and you're afraid of rocking the boat. So I guess I'm curious, what are you afraid will happen? If you were to bring up a conversation about the dynamic that you're noticing, what are you afraid will happen? Perhaps you're afraid that your partner will deny that they're ignoring you. And then you're going to feel doubly rejected, right? Rejected by the ignoring and then rejected by your partner disagreeing with you, that they are even ignoring you. Perhaps you're worried that your partner will blame you for the distance, right? Your partner will say, I'm pulling away because you're too demanding or you're getting on my nerves. And then you'll end up feeling some shame. Perhaps your partner will validate that there is a lot of space between the two of you. And this will feel perhaps like it's the beginning of the end. And maybe then you would end up wishing that you had just left well enough alone, right? Maybe that fear of rocking the boat is like, maybe this is kind of as good as it gets. And my choices are to accept the status quo or lose the relationship altogether. And I hear that those stakes would be awfully high. I don't know the gender of your partner, but I know that you are someone who has been socialized in the masculine. You're a man. And I know that men sometimes feel worried about saying to their partner, especially if their partner is a woman, I miss hugs and I miss sex because it feels to that man as if they're fitting in to that stereotype that men only want one thing, quote unquote, men only want one thing. And this stereotype is so freaking confusing because boys are socialized to shore up their self-esteem via performance of all kinds, including performance with women, including success with women. Boys are taught that their ability to attract a woman or to get a woman or get with a woman, that that's a marker of their own worth, of their own attractiveness. So we do that on the one hand, and then we blame men for needing and craving affirmation via women's attention, right? It's this double bind that men end up feeling like they're in where we've taught them this is a marker of your worth and then we punish them for pursuing the thing that we've said is the marker of your worth. So I'm putting that out there because a piece of your origin wound here certainly may have to do with your family of origin. But a piece of your origin wound here, especially if your partner is a woman, is a cultural origin wound, right? You are feeling like there's a lot of distance between you and your partner, feeling like you guys aren't hugging and touching and connecting and being sexual together is painful because our culture has taught you that that's the only way, the only metric by which you can know that you're okay. And this stereotype certainly sells men short. And I hear for you that hugs and sex are an avenue by which you feel cherished and chosen. Hopefully, hugs and sex are pleasurable in their own right, but it's more than that for you. Hugs and sex are metrics. They're avenues by which you feel cherished and chosen. They're metrics of connection for you. So if I had to guess, my guess is that your partner knows that you want more affection and attention than they are giving you these days. And if I had to guess, my guess is that your partner's story flip-flops between feeling shame, I'm a disappointment to him, and blame. He's so demanding. Nothing's ever going to be enough for him anyway, so why even try? I'm guessing that there's a lot more going on inside your partner's head than you know or have access to. And I'm guessing that your partner is somewhere, you know, somewhere in between blame and shame, depending on the moment. I don't know how this gets better without you being willing to give voice to your concern, without rocking the boat. I worry that the more you pursue connection with your partner via behavior rather than dialogue, the more your partner is going to shut down and pull away, especially if your partner is carrying a story like, he ignores me until he wants sex from me. In other words, if you and your partner aren't able to talk about 
the distance, about the dance, about the stories that are inside of your head and wondering about the stories inside your partner's head. If you can't surface that verbally, it's going to still come out behaviorally, right? Whatever we're not talking about, we're going to be acting out with our behavior anyways, regardless. And if your behavior is communicating you're pursuing, you're looking for a door, you're trying to figure out how to get more attention, you're behaviorally showing that to your partner. I worry that that's creating conditions for your partner to pull away even more. If that's what's happening and your partner's story is, he ignores me until he wants sex from me, that's an inaccurate story, but it's a feasible story. And it creates this negative interaction cycle, right? Where the more you're trying to be prioritized, you're trying to get attention, the more your partner is shutting down and pulling away. And negative interaction cycles that we aren't addressing head on take on a life of their own. And for the two of you, you've got, I would suspect, a pursuer distancer cycle going. That's what couples therapists call it, the pursuer distancer cycle. The more you reach for your partner, the more your partner pulls back, the more your partner pulls back, the more you pursue. The way out of this cycle is for the two of you to position yourselves shoulder to shoulder, looking together at the cycle. The cycle is the problem. It's not that you're needy. It's not that your partner is, you know, frozen and withholding. That's not the problem. The problem is that the two of you get into the cycle that you don't know quite how to talk about. And the problem is that when you're in this cycle, you are both at risk of misinterpreting each other. And the ways in which your stuff and your partner's stuff get mixed and mingled up together creates a dance that leaves you feeling lonely and I suspect leaves your partner feeling lonely as well. So my biggest recommendation here is that you shift your attention away from more deeply understanding your wound. Certainly that work is important. I'm always, always here for understanding our own past and how we bring in our own past. But I would like you to shift away from trying to kind of crack the code on your origin wound and shift your attention a bit more towards more deeply understanding the dance between the two of you. The two of you are 20 years into your relationship at this point. What are the two of you about at this point in time? Like, what's your relationship about at this point in time? What are the individual milestones that each of you are moving through? In what ways are you on pretty similar tracks in your life? In what way are you on different tracks in your life? What are the relational milestones that the two of you are facing right now? What are some ways that you might perhaps be able to rediscover or revisit some old ways of connecting? Could you touch back on some things that the two of you used to love here at the 20-mile, 20-year mark? What might you rediscover together? At this 20-year mark, how might you be able to create some new rituals and some new ways of spending time together that might invite your partner towards you? I'm wondering, what are some of your partner's favorite ways to spend time with you? Right? Like I'm wondering about what you might be able to do to create the conditions that invite your partner forward. I wonder when are the times that your partner feels most seen and most cherished by you, right? So your, your worry is about rocking the boat. So rather than asking your partner something like, why don't you make me more of a priority, which I think would rock the boat in a way that puts your partner on the defensive or, you know, kind of puts us in a heavy tone. I can imagine you leading with curiosity. I could imagine you, you know, putting a hand on your heart, honoring your prioritization wound, and then creating a sense of invitation so that the conversation becomes about the two of you being able to feel like this relationship is a source of levity and enjoyment, right? Might you be able to tap into some bravery and courage around inviting your partner towards you, that you'd then be rocking the boat in a way that really benefits both of you, right? You're rocking the boat in a way that says like, we deserve to have some fun together. We deserve to play together. We deserve to have some novel experiences together. And I wonder about you being able to take a little bit of leadership 
in that way. I also, of course, when you know you mentioned hugs and sex, so I'm of course thinking about what is the sexual relationship needing here at the 20 year mark? Is there, you know, what are the ways in which the two of you might need to have some conversations about sex that you haven't had for a while or ever? I'm wondering what is your partner wanting in a sexual experience with you that perhaps your partner has not been able to ask for yet or, you know, feel safe enough to raise with you? I suspect as the one who's wanting more attention and affection, I suspect that you would be a really willing participant in creating an experience for your partner that would really feel good to them. If you could understand a bit more about what they were wanting, what they were needing, I feel pretty confident that you'd be on board to create an experience that would honor that. So, you know, this is why I love doing this podcast so much, right? Like I wonder what it might be like to listen to one of our many, many episodes that we've done about sex. Would that be a sort of gentle entry into a conversation about sex. I'm thinking especially about the recent episode about desire discrepancies that we did with Dr. Lauren Fogel-Mercy and Dr. Jennifer Vensel. Might you listen to that episode together and see what kind of new conversation or new idea would come from that or using their book or one of the many resources that are out there around cultivating sexual connection? Because the thing we know for sure is 20 years in, it's not going to be easy, breezy, simple, perhaps like it was in the beginning, or perhaps you never had that chapter, which does not mean that you're doomed, but it does mean that the two of you deserve to have the tools and resources that you need to create a little bit more ease and comfort around sex. Okay. I hope those thoughts were helpful. And again, I admire the work you've done so far. And I hope that some of these suggestions will help you have a different kind of conversation with your partner and that you can rock the boat in a way that is really nurturing and in the service of this relationship. Question number three is from a Reimagining Love listener who uses she, her pronouns and writes, I would love to hear an episode about differences in life pacing slash ambition in a relationship. I've been dating my partner, who is a man, for over a year. He is caring, attentive, hardworking, takes care of himself and his home, and is very open to self-growth. I grew up middle class, and my idea for a fulfilling life is marked by education, travel, self-improvement, hobbies, and living with intention. He grew up in the foster system, and I believe his idea of life is more about survival, having a steady job and a roof over your head. I don't care that we have different levels of education and experience, but I'm at a stage where I'm enjoying the fruits of my hard work and education in my 20s, and I'm thinking about what goals are next, mine and ours. I'm filled with endless curiosity and ambition, and I want that in a partner. He's not a very confident person and doesn't know what he wants out of life or have any goals. I want to build a life with him, but I feel a lack of intellectual connection and drive with him and am emotionally exhausted from shouldering the labor of this relationship. Okay, so what I will say right up top is that you are going to be hearing a lot more from me in the coming months on couple dynamics at the intersection of ambition and intimacy. This is like my new favorite hot topic. In September of this year, I gave a talk at the first ever Psychotherapy Networker Couples Conference. And that talk was called High Achieving Couples When Work and Love Collide. I really, really enjoyed the research that I did getting ready for that talk. And what I'm super clear on is that we need to be spending a lot more time and energy exploring how dynamics around career and ambition shape a couple's dynamics. So your question is near and dear to my heart. It is speaking to something that is very much alive and real for me these days in my work. But I'm going to limit myself to a brief response to your question, knowing that you're going to be hearing more from me. So first of all, I have just a ton of respect for how you have framed this dilemma. You're aware of a difference between the two of you. You understand the roots of this difference and you are calling it a difference. You're not saying there's a better way and a worse way. 
You're also intent on not getting stuck on the education difference as a difference per se, but rather for the subtle and pervasive ripple effects that this difference has throughout your whole relationship. And I think that's really the heart of this. I think it's really important that you and your partner co-create a shared understanding of this difference between the two of you, that you name it as a difference, that you name that the two of you are loving across this difference. All of us who are in intimate partnerships are loving across so many differences. And I think that it is in naming those differences that we can start to co-create an understanding of how this difference affects you, how this difference affects me, what it means to the two of us. And all of that then sets us up to leverage this difference in an ongoing way, such that the difference becomes a source of strength for the two of you as a couple, and so that each of you are clear on the benefits that you get from loving someone who's different from you in this way. Because whenever there's a difference, it can be very easy to scare ourselves or judge our partner around the difference. But for every difference, there are clear ways that we can say, oh, it's so good for me to love somebody who's different from me in this way. It's also really important that the two of you create a shared understanding of how this difference affects you because poorly managed conflict about work and ambition has the power to destroy a couple. I'll just put it frankly, (laughs) head in my notes here, has the power to determine relationship outcome. But what that means is it has the power to tank a couple. Conflict about work erodes relationship quality powerfully and pretty effectively. So a recent research study, 2023, Forbes magazine commissioned a survey about divorce. And they gathered data from a thousand Americans who were divorced Americans. And one of the questions was about the most common type of conflict that they had experienced with their now ex-spouse. The number one response was conflict about career choice. What happens at work does not stay at work. What happens at work comes home and sits between couples in ways that can be really problematic. So the fact that you and your partner are different around ambition and drive, that's not the problem. The problem is how the two of you navigate it. The problem is unless the two of you create a really juicy story about how this difference actually makes you guys stronger as a couple, then I think you're wise to be paying attention to it because I think it could really be a problem. So when I think about the dynamics of a couple, I think about there being actually four relationships. One, you have a relationship with your own job. Two, your partner has a relationship with their own job. Three, you have a relationship with your partner's job. And four, your partner has a relationship with your job. In other words, you have thoughts, feelings, opinions, beliefs, fears about your own work, and about your partner's work. And your partner has thoughts, feelings, opinions, beliefs, fears about their own work and about your work. And these beliefs and opinions are shaped by cultural socialization, the experiences you had in your family of origin, and experiences you had in prior relationships. But that needs to be looked at because Otherwise, the judgments you make about your job, the judgments you make about your partner's job have the power to either improve the relationship you have or destroy the relationship that you have. What you know for sure is that you and your partner are pretty different around ambition. You have an ambition discrepancy. And I think that these ambition discrepancies play out in a few different ways for couples you and your boyfriend fall into a type of couple that I have started to call the coaster and the climber with, you know, your boyfriend is the coaster and you're the climber. I mean, the fact that I have named this dynamic, the coaster and the climber speaks to the fact this is such a common dynamic. I have had so many couples in my caseload and friends and people I've known over the years where this is a difference. The coaster 
is, you know, the type of person who sees work as a means to an end. Work is a necessity. It's a job. It's a paycheck. The coaster seeks their meaning somewhere else in their life. For example, their leisure pursuits, time with family and friends, right? They're working to work. They're kind of coasting. They don't have their eye on the next rung of the corporate ladder or the next raise or the next promotion. Their sense of meaning and purpose in life happens outside of their workplace. And then there's the climber. The climber sees work as a means unto itself. They oftentimes have more of a career than a job. They view their work as a source of self-esteem. Work is a source of self-definition. Work is an arena for striving and purpose and meaning. And it is often the case that a coaster finds a climber and a climber finds a coaster. It's also, by the way, maybe the case that the two of you aren't that far. You know, if we can sort of think about a spectrum from an extreme coaster at one end of the spectrum to an extreme climber at the other end of the spectrum, it may be that you and your partner are actually not that far apart. But because if you put any two of us, right, take a hundred people and you can line them up on that spectrum somewhere. And there's going to be differences between any two people or just about any two people. So it may not be that the two of you are that polarized on this variable of sort of relationship with ambition. You may not be that polarized, but in that wedge of light between your boyfriend as more of a coaster and you as more of a climber is enough space for all kinds of fears and annoyances to take root and become relationship challenges. Not necessarily insurmountable challenges, but challenges that need to get navigated and worked on. And I think that when two people love each other across a difference like this, there's a dreaded dynamic that can play out and there's a power couple potential that can play out. The dreaded dynamic goes like this. He ends up feeling to you like a ball and chain. You feel unable to travel or aspire or strive because he makes snippy comments or he undermines you or he rolls his eyes at you, right? That's pretty freaking dreadful. And you feel to him in this dreaded dynamic like a pressure cooker, right? He feels with you unable to relax, unable to just simply enjoy the moment, unable to just simply feel comfortable in his own skin because you are busy figuring out the next mountain to climb, like either metaphorically or perhaps literally, and pestering him to do more, right? You can see how in this dreaded dynamic, you each become the bane of each other's existence. Neither of you are doing any favors, right? You feel weighed down. You feel kind of too big too fast for this relationship. And he feels constantly like pressured. Like, you know, what are we doing now? Why do we have to do more that, you know, that you, that he sort of feels in your eyes like a constant disappointment. No fun for either of you. And I would posit to you that when there's a difference like this, the coaster climber dynamic, there's also a power couple potential. Like there's the potential here for the two of you to leverage this difference in a way that is complementary, in a way that you are each better off. In this power couple potential, he reminds you that the present moment is in fact enough, that there's beauty in simplicity, that there's beauty in the right here, right now, that looking towards a future horizon means losing out on you know whatever is sacred and holy and bountiful right here, right now, today. Beautiful. And in this power couple potential dynamic, you remind him that he in fact gets to dream. He is no longer the scared little boy in foster care. He gets to have dreams. He gets to imagine the possible. He gets to have his former ceiling. What you conveyed in your question is that, you know, he has a sense of like safety, right? He had to create safety. That was formerly his ceiling. The most he could hope for was to be safe. But by choosing you, by choosing to fall in love with a climber, what you introduce to him is this idea that safety perhaps gets to become the new floor 
right? He may get to have a new kind of ceiling. He may now be able to reach for possibility for a life that is a bit more expansive than what's right here, right now. And I guess that's what I wonder is, could you quiet down your own stories and beliefs and preferences enough to get really curious about his dreams, even just the little baby whisper of a dream. This has been pretty easy for you. You inhabit possibility pretty darn easily. It sounds like you had early experiences of safety, of security. You grew up in a family where that was what was modeled as like, what if, what if, what if? Well, that's not what he grew up with, but certainly he chose you for a reason. I suspect that may have something to do with how fascinating it must be for him to see somebody, you know, dream with ease. Okay. So could you quiet down your own, you know, I'm sure you have 17 different ambitions for him on his behalf, you know, ideas of what he could do and what he's so good at, and maybe he should, and what if he tried, could you quiet all of that down and just get curious about what is the little baby whisper of a dream that he has, right? If he were to move from survival mode into something that's a bit more imaginative, what might he imagine? What does he imagine? And it might be something that you never in a million years could even come up with. And it might not align with what you see for him, but how cool would that be, right? If you were able to just make that space for him to start to put out there what if. And the what if might be really simple. What if we, I don't know, (laughs) you know, redecorated this room a little bit, right? They might be really simple little things, but for you to know that that is a reflection, right? The idea of something different than what is right here, right now, that that is something that is possible for him because of the relationship with you, right? What a gift that is. Like that is some serious power couple potential. Okay. So you also did a very lovely job of connecting his coasting with his early trauma, right? Having been in foster care, he's been most of his life in survival mode. And so that's the origin story for his kind of desire to live with simplicity, live with what's happening right now to kind of coast. But I wonder if there's a version that holds true for you as well. For many of us who identify as climbers, our climbing is both an essential expression of our temperament and an adaptation to early painful dynamics or a reflection of a role we played in our family of origin. So what is your ambition about? Certainly you said that it's about a family that you grew up in and that you had modeled for you, travel, self-improvement, et cetera, et cetera. Is there also a way that you had to be striving in order to survive? Was it a survival mode for you? Was it a means of self-definition? Was it a way of avoiding some dreaded or feared outcome? I guess I wonder if you're able to get in touch with some of the layers of complexity that happen for you around your ambition, if it would sort of loosen the grip of your ambition. You know what I mean? Like that if you, maybe you don't have to always be striving and looking for the next thing, that there may be some healing for you that would come from giving yourself room to coast, to rest, to not be looking for that next edge. I also want each of you to take a look at the hidden benefits for each of you in choosing a partner who's different from you in this way. What do you think you might have been seeking or yearning for in choosing somebody with such a different orientation to ambition? That would be an interesting question for each of you to reflect on or for you to speak together about. Like, What drew you to your partner? Like, Why was this very different orientation to ambition? Like, why was that appealing to you? I want to share with you a quote that I read in an article by Derek Thompson in The Atlantic. It's from a 2022 article. And I love this take on ambition. Derek writes this, some people think about career ambition as a profound virtue. Others think of it as something closer to a capitalist sin. I think ambition is a taste. What does that mean? 
I love Central Coast California wines. They're important to me. But when I meet people who don't care about wine, I don't care that they don't care. Because drinking wine isn't a human virtue. It's a taste. Ugh, I love that so much. Any conversation that you and your boyfriend have about your ambition discrepancy is going to have to be predicated on this idea that ambition, career ambition, is a taste. It's neither a virtue nor a sin. It's just a way of being, right? That orientation to ambition will set the two of you up to be curious about it rather than figuring out, you know, who's the a-hole, right? Are you the a-hole for being so ambitious or is he the a-hole for not wanting to climb the corporate ladder? Those are boring conversations. Those are conversations that are dead-end streets. A much more interesting conversation is why did we choose each other? Why were we drawn to somebody who's different around ambition than we are? What does it mean to bring two people together with different orientations to ambition? Okay, you also said, I lack intellectual connection with him. This for sure might be a deal breaker, right? You might decide that unless you are intellectually connected with a partner, you are doing neither of you a service by staying together. This might absolutely be a deal breaker. But I also would just, of course, challenge you to remember that you cannot and should not and are not going to get all of your needs met in one relationship. It's just too much to expect. So I guess I wonder which of your other relationships, which of your friendships or your family relationships, your coworker relationships can stoke your intellectual connection so that you can release him from your unmet expectations and so that you can then be freed up to appreciate what he does bring to the table rather than, you know, I'm not saying that you are punishing him, but I think there's a risk here that you would punish him or you would feel punishing towards him around him not being an intellectual equal or an intellectual partner to you. But I don't know that he needs to be because not everybody can be everything for you. And it's going to take a village to keep you entertained and engaged throughout your life. And so maybe there would be a ton of relief for him if he could just release you to, you know, these friends that you get to be intellectually connected with or this you know, family member. And that's not a threat. That is just a reminder that it's going to take a village to keep you <laughs> happy and satisfied and engaged. The last part I wanted to talk through with you was that you wrote, I am emotionally exhausted from shouldering the labor of this relationship. So this was, I think, the thing that concerned me most about what you sent in, because I think it speaks to something that is deeper that's going on here. It may be as simple as this. I can imagine that his survival mode means perhaps that he's not the one planning trips or planning adventures or planning nights out on the town. And I can imagine that you are yearning for some sense of reciprocity, of effort. That if you're the one who's suggesting, what if we go to this? What if we try this restaurant? What if, what if, that you're wanting some kind of reciprocity? I don't know if that's what you mean when you say shouldering the labor, but I imagine that labor might be the labor of, you know, creative ways of spending time together. So I guess my question for you is how else could he convey that he cherishes you, that he chooses you, that he values you, that he values time with you. If he's not going to be the guy who's coming up with creative plans, because that's just like more possibility than he's hardwired to be able to come up with, how else can he or how else does he convey that he cherishes you, that he chooses you, that you matter to him, right? Wanting to feel chosen and valued and cherished is so, so, so reasonable. It's so essential. I cannot imagine you being happy in this relationship or content in this relationship without that feeling that, ah, my partner is choosing me. My partner values me. My partner cherishes me. That's important. I validate that you want that. I just think that you might need to expand the avenues by which you receive that feeling. Because if you expect to receive that feeling based on things like him making plans for the two of you, you know, I'm guessing he's going to come up short on that domain. I'm also wondering, how does he respond 
when you plan something, like what if you were to plan something that feels really good and really fun to you, even if it does not fit with his somewhat more austere mindset, right? So you're the one bringing the idea to the table. Oh, I really want to try this new restaurant or I really want to go check out this museum. What I want is for him to go with the flow. I want for him to appreciate the opportunity to have that experience with you, right? That would be really cool if he would be like, all right, I never would have come up with that myself. I never would have chosen that myself, but sure, I love you and therefore I'm up for it. I will, you know, put a smile on my face and bring a good attitude and go with the flow and do this with you. If he's able to do that, I want you to accept that part of choosing to love him means that you are the one who takes the lead on these kinds of adventures, right? That just making peace with that, just accepting that is sort of the price of admission is that you're the one who's coming up with the creative new idea. And as long as he's going along with it, with a positive attitude, that to me feels like a huge win. If he drags his heels, if he complains about how excessive it is, then the two of you are going to become increasingly polarized and resentful of each other. As long as he accepts that loving you means being willing to accompany you on at least some of these adventures, then you may have to let go of the dream that you're going to be wined and dined and begin to embrace the role of main whiner and diner. Right? And the benefit here is that if you're the main whiner and diner, the benefit is that you get to choose the restaurant. You get to set the agenda. So maybe you can see sort of that silver lining of it. If what you're saying when you say, I'm emotionally exhausted from shouldering the labor of this relationship, if what you're saying is that he's really, really shut down emotionally and he's not able to engage in any kind of relationship talk with you, then that's a problem, right? Obviously, that's a problem. It compromises intimacy. It's going to make it very hard for you to feel optimistic about the future of this relationship. If this is the case, I suspect it's because loving you is bringing up a lot of pain from his past. If you were able to develop a lot of secure attachment in your family of origin, he might feel ambivalent about getting close to your family. Getting to know them might seem incredibly like tempting on the one hand, while also awakening deep, old yearning inside of him. Right, Seeing your family, getting to know your family may awaken in him profound grief about the family that he wanted, the family that he needed, but did not have. And it's sometimes like in the contrast of what he experienced then and what he gets to experience now with you, it's that place of contrast that the pain emerges, that the grief emerges. It's like, it may be that in getting to know you and your family, it's like he didn't even know how badly he was hurting until he saw and kind of touched this different way of being in connection, this different way of being a family. So my deep, deep, deep hope obviously would be that he can I've got my hand on my heart, that he can have deep compassion for the little boy who didn't get to have that and for the man who now does get to have that, right? This to start to be able to even just with a little baby toe, be able to take in and savor the kind of connection that perhaps you and your family are offering. I would hope that he can start to do some of that work and that you can, of course, be patient. You know, that just because something is a quote unquote good thing, but it's a good thing. My family loves you and you love them and you get to have family now. And this is a good thing. You know, things can be good things and hard things at the very, very same time. So this might be have to be something that, that, you know, you go slowly with. And, you know, I've had couples where the two of them kind of love on and take care of the wounded little boy. So I could imagine a world where the two of you, you know, are sort of tasked with loving this little boy who got through foster care, who didn't get to have the kinds of memories and experiences that he gets to have now, that that little boy gets to come with you into these new experiences together. But that's a journey that's bit by bit, it's step by step, and it's not easy. And it's beautiful, but it evokes sadness as well. So I guess, of course, I'm wondering, would he go to therapy with you? Would he go to therapy himself? And might that be a place where the two of you can start to just explore 
you know, the then versus the now. And for you to be patient and gentle and curious with that exploration. All right. Well, we did it. These were such thoughtful questions. I am just forever grateful for this Reimagining Love audience and the questions that you bring to me and the trust that you have in me as I kind of muddle through and offer you different perspectives on these questions. So thank you to the listeners who are brave enough to send the questions in. And though you may have been seeking support for your own situation, letting me talk about your issue on the podcast is going to help other people who are listening who might be going through something similar. And there's that really cool ripple effect that your vulnerability ends up having. So remember that you can always submit a question using the link that's in the show notes of every single podcast episode. Thank you for listening today. Thank you to those of you who've been listening since the beginning. Thank you for sticking with me through a hundred episodes and here's to 100 more. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Katie Pagich of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love, 